Our sermon text is Titus chapter 1. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles or your devices. Have, Have this passage in front of you and keep it in front of you then as we walk through it together or through part of it together. This morning, part of it uh, in the evening service. Titus chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Two, Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put in order what remained and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please keep your Bibles open to that passage, partly so you can make sure that what I say is actually what God's word says, because what God says is the, the important thing. Let's pray. Living God, as we reflect on your word, we pray for the, the help of the, of the Holy Spirit. Graciously illumine our hearts that we might understand what you are saying, that we might hear the voice of the Good Shepherd speaking from heaven. Uh, give us hearts to heed his voice. Enable us to follow you in faith and repentance, step by step throughout our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. So when you read through the book of Acts, you see that the Apostle Paul, as a missionary, followed a certain pattern when he went to uh, a new place. Um, He would go first to the synagogue, and he would preach the gospel there. And he would show how the gospel that the New Testament proclaims is actually what the whole Old Testament taught and pointed forward to. It's there, 
if you can see it, and many, and sort of the same thing kept happening. Some people would be, some of the Jews would say, yes, this is the God that we've been serving all our lives. And they would, they would embrace the gospel happily. And, and, and some maybe would, would not realize that this is the God they've been serving, but would at that point embrace the God. But the synagogue sort of divided in two because the other half of the synagogue said, no, this is not what we want at all. And they would oppose Paul. And usually then he'd take the believers and set up, start a planted church nearby and often Gentiles then were converted and added to that church. Well this letter is written as a result of a missionary journey in the island of Crete just a bit east of Italy in the Mediterranean Sea and Crete was known as a very pagan island and there must have been some Jews there especially we'll see the apostles speaking about uh, Jewish fables and so on Uh, But it was mostly Gentiles, and it was mostly pagan Gentiles. In fact, their patron saint, or their god, uh, was Zeus. Uh, Zeus, if you know know anything about Greek mythology, was a very immoral god. He was kind of a trickster, and and he would deceive people. He would take advantage of people in lots of different ways. And Actually, that was the value system of the Cretans. They thought that was great stuff. That was the way they wanted to be. And that sort of formed their thinking. And so God has planted a church because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he goes where the sinners are. And and people were being converted. But just like me, just like the rest of us, people aren't converted overnight. They come to Christ. They're united to Christ. Uh, But then there's a process of sanctification as the Lord uh, teaches them to put to death these sins, even to recognize the sins, things they've taken for granted all their lives, and to put them to death and to put on uh, godliness uh, to become more and more like Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul has left Titus behind. Timothy and Titus were sort of the two deputies uh, that the Apostle Paul often used and he had some others, but these, these were the main two deputies that he often used. And I guess I've sometimes thought of Titus as a church planter or an organizing pastor. Uh, so here's, here's sort of this network of house churches in Crete, uh, believers that have been left behind. And the Apostle Paul says, I've left you there, verse 5, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Maybe I jumped the gun because I wanted to ask you, what do you think the Apostle Paul should put at the top of Timothy's to-do list? What would you put at the top of Timothy's to-do list? You're you're organizing this, this loose coalition of believers here on the pagan island of Crete. What's the most important thing to do? What did the Holy Spirit put at the top of Timothy of Titus's to-do list? And it was this, seek Christ-following servant leaders. And that's the theme of the sermon. Two basic points. Why do people, why do churches need Christ-following servant leaders? Two reasons. One, because our God is a personal God. 
who is pleased to work with persons through persons. God could deal with us as atomistic individuals disconnected with one another. And in our culture, we tend to expect that. We tend to be a very individualistic culture. It's just me, me and God, me and my Bible, and me and God. That's sort of uh, the man building block of the kingdom. But that's not the way God looks at it all. God looks at us as people who are in relationships and webs of relationships, and especially with him. And it pleases him to use people to do his work. Just to, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit trail, but Martin Luther was really good in speaking about Christian vocation, the importance of all lawful callings in this life. And what I liked about his emphasis I mean, all the reformers stressed that, but the way Luther stressed it was uh, especially gripping to me because he said, this is, these are the masks of God. This is God himself taking care of not just Christians, but the whole creation. So, for example, when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, how does God answer that prayer? Does your bread suddenly appear in your counter? Does the food suddenly appear? in your refrigerator? No. Farmer goes out and he plows the field and and he plants the seed and he cultivates it and and by and by he reaps the harvest and and he and he sells it to the miller and the miller grinds it up and makes flour and he, he sells it to the baker and the baker puts it together and makes bread and and that's is God himself answering that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Which is why every single calling is so important. And so it is in church leadership. We pray, Lord, guide and govern your church. Protect us from harm. Provide for our needs. And the Lord answers that prayer by giving pastors and elders and deacons and brothers and sisters Every believer is part of the body, uh, but Christ-following servant leaders is part of God's way of caring for his church. But second, look at verse 10. Notice that it starts with the word for, because it's giving us a reason for verses 5 through 9. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. This is why we know there were Jewish people on that island. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. See, we need Christ-following servant leaders because the world, the flesh, and the devil keep conspiring together to stir up unhealthy influences in the lives of believers and the lives of churches. And this keeps obscuring the gospel. They're, they must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families. They're drowning out the gospel, the good news that in Christ God saves sinners. And for a faithful church, that's the main reason for us to be. It's all about Jesus. And to drown out the gospel means to drown, drown out the church's witness to the world, at least to obscure it. Uh, the church's own health and well-being, the spiritual health of Christians and Christian families. 
And this could mean church families as well as blood families. And there's a third reason, because God's strategy to overcome unhealthy influences is to fight error with truth, to fight darkness with light. And God raises up men in the church to lead in this fight. There was one time I was a, I was a very young Christian. My parents were, were believers. I came home feeling so defeated, just so discouraged and defeated, I, because I, I was losing in my struggle against temptation. And, and I was talking to my father about that, and he said, somewhere I just read or heard this, you can't push the darkness out. You have to let the light in. And I, that transformed my whole approach to fighting against temptation because I realized, well, I've been trying to, to fight it in my own strength and I've been trying to push it out rather than relying on the Lord, drawing on his grace through the means of grace. You can't push out darkness. You have to let the light come in and displace it. And what's true in the individual believer's life is true in the church as well and in society as well. So look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Elders, verse 5, translates the Greek word presbyteroi, which is where we get presbytery and Presbyterian from. Overseer, verse 7, is another word for the same role. It's an umbrella term uh, that includes both what we call ministers or teaching elders and ruling elders. This, this umbrella term includes both of, both of those categories. The background is the Old Testament where the word elders, this very same word, uh, included both Levitic, Levitical elders who would preach the word and administer sacrifices, and elders of the people who were what we would call ruling elders. But when God's people seek and submit him, seek him and submit to him, uh, the Holy Spirit working through the word enables us to recognize who the Lord is calling to serve in those places. Selecting officers is a highly spiritual activity with a capital S, as in Holy Spiritual. We need the Holy Spirit's guidance, which is why we need to be saturated with the Word and we need to saturate our search with prayer. And so when we seek officers, we should consciously put off worldly considerations because this is how churches drift away from the Lord and from the Gospel. Uh, Bit by bit, well, I've mentioned a few people. I grew up in liberal Protestantism in a church that once was a strong Bible-believing church and a very evangelistic, missionary-oriented church. But by the time I was growing up, it was saying stuff like, well, now that we're modern, uh, in this modern age, we know better than the superstitions of the Bible. We know that the miracles and stuff, that's, that's superstition. Old, old ancient people believed in stuff like that because they were superstitious. But we're scientific and we know better. That stuff doesn't happen, but the morals are good. And so follow the Ten Commandments, follow the Golden Rule, obey the Sermon on the Mount, 
That was sort of the message that I was raised in. How could the church go from being a strong Bible-believing missionary, evangelistic church, to denying the gospel, denying the truth of the Bible, to read the Bible and say most of this stuff isn't, isn't for us modern people? How could you get that far? Well, not overnight, but step by step, bit by bit. And part of the way, and a big part of the way, is by selecting as leaders, as pastors and, and elders, or whatever terminology they, they would use, those who were not really the Lord's people for the job. Well, how do we recognize, this is the second point and the longest, how do we recognize who the triune God of grace wants to be pastors and elders? Well, King Jesus himself makes it clear by speaking through his Holy Spirit, by his Holy Spirit, uh, through the word of God. He tells us what to look for by describing how to recognize Christ-following servant leaders. And twice in this passage, God says that the Christian leader is to be above reproach. You can see it in verse 6, and you can see it again in verse 7, which means that if accusations are ever made, uh, they shouldn't be able to stick. Talking about an accusation that would actually disqualify a person from serving as a pastor or elder. Because pastors and elders hold a public office, which means that their lives need to be upright, well thought of both by outsiders, 1 Timothy 3.7, and by insiders, which doesn't mean sinlessly perfect, otherwise we wouldn't have any pastors in the, and we wouldn't have any elders. But it does mean people who are serious about walking uh, with the Lord. In a nutshell, these are men who you look at and say, oh, so that's what the Christian life looks like. And I was mentioning before the service to a few people that I, um, that I was converted as a young adult the summer after I graduated high school, and it was kind of a, a Damascus Road experience, a, a U-turn in my life. And in God's providence, I was placed fairly quickly under very sound teaching. I, I got involved in in a Orthodox Presbyterian church in Harmony, New Jersey, and the pastor uh, was Lou Grotenhaus. And I look at Lou and Ruth Grotenhaus as my spiritual parents, because because when I looked at him and her, because I can't think of them separate from each other, it was his preaching and her cooking that really <laughs> that brought me to the that established me in my faith. They were very given to hospitality. Um, but when I looked at them, and they had some sons that were my age, who became good friends, I said, so that's what the Christian life is supposed to look like. See, that's basically what the Lord is saying in this whole section, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to sort of shoot through it and give an overview of it. Uh, but focus especially on four areas. Number one... Has King Jesus given him a good grip on his family life? Look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So first of all, in his marriage, 
He's to be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, which does not necessarily mean that he has to be married because the Apostle Paul wasn't married. Jesus wasn't married. But it does mean that whether he's married or unmarried, he does have to conform to God's seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. He does have to live in honesty, faithfulness, devotion, and if married, uh, to his wife. And the second aspect is his parenting. His children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And I usually don't challenge whatever translation I'm reading from. But in this case, I think our translation is a bit unhelpful because the word translated believers, his children are to be believers, is literally faithful. So notice two things about these, these children. His children are to be believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So these are still under... Uh, parental control and authority. They're not middle-aged offspring. Uh, These are children, plural. So in other words, we're not just looking at one, one child, but the pattern of the family life as a whole. And the two questions are, are his children faithful children? Not are they born again because... Man looks on the outward appearance. Only God looks on the heart. Uh, But are they faithful? That is, outwardly speaking, are they faithful? And are they behaving, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination? In other words, number one, has King Jesus given him a good grip on his family life? Number two, has King Jesus given him a good grip on himself? How can the church leader teach others unless he's first been taught himself? Which is why there needs to be some degree of spiritual maturity in those who are to be church leaders. This is why 1 Timothy 5.22 warns, Do not be hasty in laying on of hands. So this begins by telling us what a pastor or elder should not be like. Look at verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Not arrogant, literally not pleasing himself. Uh, Not somebody who says it's my way or the highway. Oops, sorry. (laughs) Not somebody who insists on his own rights, his own opinions, doesn't care about the rights or the opinions of others. Or not somebody who is an expert at giving advice, but real resistant to receiving advice. Not quick-tempered, not hot-headed, not irritable, not impatient. As an under-shepherd, the Christian leader needs patience in dealing with the flock. (laughs) When I first became a pastor, I said to myself, okay, you're you are the pastor of a small congregation in a small, very conservative denomination. You're going to live a very sheltered life. But that couldn't have been farther from the truth. Because everybody that the Lord saves, even in small conservative denominations, are sinners. They, we all come from Adam, and, and every, our hearts contain the seeds of every conceivable sin. And so, It shouldn't surprise us. It does sometimes surprise us, but 
we're capable of terrible things, uh, no matter how sheltered we think ourselves to be. And in fact, the Lord doesn't really want us to shelter ourselves from the world. He wants us to let our lives shine in the world. But, but pastors and elders have to deal with fellow sinners, not hot-headed, not a drunkard, not given to wine, not overindulging. Um, in fact, in the ancient world, drunk, the term drunkard was a figure of speech that included not just an abuse of alcohol, but any kind of outrageous unconcern for others' conduct. Not violent, literally not a striker, not lashing out, not with fists, not with words, not running roughshod over other people, not greedy for gain. Christian leaders should be motivated by service, not by profit. And they should be givers more so than takers. So that's what the pastor or elder should not be like. What should they be like? Look at verse 8. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Hospitable. Literally a lover of strangers having an open heart and life that invites and welcomes others into it that receives people and gives them the liberty to be themselves. A lover of good, enthusiastic for what's good and what promotes the good of other people. And good doesn't just mean ethically upright, but it means what's good for people as in their their total well-being. Self-controlled, mastering the drives that lead to impulsive or destructive play behavior, upright, living in accord with God's law, just and fair in dealing with others, holy, serious with God, real with God, pursuing Christ and Christ-likeness, disciplined, self-control, self-mastery. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So number one, has God given him a good grip on his family life? Number two, has God given him a good grip on himself? Number three, has God given him a good grip on God's truth? Look at his commitment to God's word. Look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. What's the trustworthy word? Paul's salutation sums it up. Verse 4. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. See, the gospel is the foundation of faithful church leadership. When you look at prospective pastors, prospective elders, uh, do they have a clear grasp of basic Christian truths? When godly leaders hold firm to the trustworthy word that God makes himself right with us because of his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, with a godly example backing up the credibility of that message, then the rest of verse 9 follows. So that... He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke, also to rebuke those who correct it. So John Calvin put it this way, a pastor needs two voices. And by that he included what we call ruling elders. One for gathering the sheep, the other for driving away wolves and thieves the scripture supplies them with the means for doing both. And that puts it well. The pastors and elders are to gather the sheep by making the gospel known, and they are to protect the sheep uh, by driving away wolves 
and thieves. So number three, does he have a good grip on God's word? And number four, has King Jesus made him available? Has he put him in the time, place, and circumstances of life where he can serve? Look again at the last part of verse five. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Has God providentially placed them where he can serve in this capacity, at this time, and in this place? So in conclusion, reflect on two important considerations or observations. The first observation is this, and we need to take it seriously. The number one qualification for a pastor or elder is godly, Christ-following character. There is such a thing as a gift of rule and other gifts in specific skills, and both Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 speak about them. And so we know some men do have these things, but where God puts his main emphasis when he gives these lists of qualifications for pastors and elders and deacons is not just here, but throughout the Bible, both the New Testament and the Old, is the man's character, the man's godliness, the man's having a living walk with the living God. And if you get that then you have almost everything you need. And one reason why, if you get that, you have almost everything you need is that elders do most of their work, in fact, almost all of their work, together. In fact, when you read through the Bible, the word elder hardly ever occurs in the singular, except in a context like this where it's listing the qualifications for someone to be made an elder. But normally it speaks of elders Deciding this, elders leading the church in this way, elders doing that. In our Presbyterian lingo, we say that church authority is joint. In other words, it's together. And that means not the pastor lording it over the ruling elders, not the ruling elders lording it over the pastor, not any elder lording it over all the others, but the elders working together Uh, to lead the church together, to come with one mind, to seek to follow Jesus, King Jesus, as he leads the church by his word and spirit. So get godly men, mature Christian men working together, and the church is likely to get the wisdom and sound judgment and proper direction that it needs from them. Or Dr. D. James Kennedy in his Evangelism Explosion program said that what we really need, it applies to these church leaders as well. What we most need are this, people who are fat, F-A-T, faithful, available, and teachable. Faithful, available, and teachable. And that about sums it up. And never forget where God puts his main emphasis, that these are not people who are perfect, not people who are sinless, but people who are serious about their walk with God and are seeking to be Christ-like and have shown some measure of growth in that. But there's a second observation, and that is this. And you might have thought of it already. The same character that we find to a prominent degree in a pastor or elder, we are to find to varying, growing degrees in every Christian, male, female, young, and old, 
Did that strike you as we read this description of the man who's to be a pastor or elder in, in the church? Because it's actually a description of Christian godliness. Basically a, a description of the virtues that God wants each of us uh, to cultivate or the vices that God wants each of us uh, to put to death. So it's not just elders who are to be blameless, hospitable, self-controlled, and holy. But all of us are. It's not just church officers who ought not to be quick-tempered, not given to too much drink, not greedy. But none of us are to be like that. A godly character is so fundamental to God's interest in your life. Personal holiness, purity, love is so crucial to what Christ wants to accomplish in you by the Holy Spirit that such a life becomes a measure of a man's readiness to be a leader in the church. But this is true for each of us. God says it again and again. Christ gave himself for you not only to make you forgiven, but also to make you holy. God sent his son to die for you, not just uh, that you might escape going to hell, but that you might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Brian Chappell explained the importance of Christ following servant leadership. A Christian leader's example, I'm quoting him, he says, a Christian leader's example helps others learn to hope that their lives can really be different. Because Christ is saving sinners. And that's all that he has to work with in the church. Those are the only raw materials the Lord has to build his church. So elders are not those who are sinless and perfect, but they're saved sinners who are a bit farther down uh, the road, and that way they can help others, and the Lord is pleased to use them. And above all, these, these qualities are a description of our Lord Jesus Christ who has done perfectly what we fall short of doing. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He's the one who is personally shepherding his church, gathering and perfecting it. He's doing so by his Holy Spirit, speaking through the word, and, he, and to do so he uses jars of clay. Second Corinthians 4, one of my favorite passages, says that the Lord is pleased to transmit his heavenly treasures through jars of clay. Now, in the ancient world, a jar of clay would be something like our modern styrofoam cup. We have our fellowship time, we get our coffee. After we finish drinking our coffee, we crumple it up and throw it away. Well, in those days, you get a jar of clay and you drink whatever the beverage is and you toss it down on the street and it becomes part of the pavement. It just, that's what a jar of clay is. So the pastors, the elders, are just these jars of clay, these styrofoam cups. But what's important is the heavenly treasures that the Lord supernaturally transmits to those who look to him in faith and follow him in faith. As his people faithfully pursue Christ, humbly trust and obey their, their Savior, who, who chose this ordinary-looking process uh, as a means to attain wonderful ends, the Lord calls us to keep following him step by step, day by day, and to keep looking to, looking for and honoring um, men who serve as leaders to help us to follow in faith. 
you can't push the darkness out. You have to let the light in. And this was at the top of the to-do list uh, for Titus. Let's pray together. O living Lord, who loved the church and laid down your life for her, who was raised from the dead and exalted to God's right hand for the sake of your church, will you cause all things to work together for the good of your redeemed people? We pray that you would please bless Redeemer Church, uh, please bless her pastor, bless her elders, and continue to raise up godly Christ-following leaders for her. Please continue to gather this flock by your word and spirit. Please use her witness to, as an instrument that many would be converted and saved out of darkness into your marvelous light. Please continue to build and gather and perfect this flock by your word and spirit. And may their light shine brightly in this community uh, for your glory and for the good of your people and for the, the growth and extension of your kingdom. We ask these things in reliance on our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The hymn that I selected to follow up is, a, is actually a prayer. Like many of our hymns and psalms are. Number 406, the hymn of application. And it's an excellent prayer. And, and sometimes maybe in your private worship you do well to, to pray the whole thing. And use that as a pattern for your prayers. But, but for now we're going to sing only four of the stanzas. Stanza 1, 6, 8, and 9. 1, 6, 8, and 9. And the Lord does hear us. And he promises to go with us. So he sends us out with his blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abandon hope. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.